Stanley Druckenmiller has another warning, never been seen before in the history of the universe beforehand. This is a brand new interview with Stanley Druckenmiller in which he noted the national debt issue, the population collapse, and also the issue with elderly people. We have big issues we need to solve, and we need to get our eye away from the absurdity of the hypothetical climate change, which is non-existent. It's more than manageable, and it's just been blown out of proportion by the corrupted media. We need to focus on real issues, such as religion, such as having more babies. And Stanley Druckenmiller speaks about all of this today. So I'm going to play the video and then add some commentary later on. The following is a recording of the keynote speech by Mr. Stan Druckenmiller at the 37th annual meeting of the USC Marshall Center for Investment Studies on May 1st, 2023. Well, I'm delighted to be here. I, um, I came here two years ago and uh, gave a talk, uh, but many people may not know that I was also here a little over 10 years ago. Um, at the time, uh, I had looked at the demographics and I had looked at what was going on with entitlements and I got quite exercised by the fact that um, the baby boomers would be turning uh, 65 in full force in about 10 years and I became terrified of the prospects of some kind of financial crisis in the 2025 to 2035 period but it wasn't something you could wait on. So USC was part of a college tour, and I specifically wanted to energize young people because it was young people that were suffering, in my opinion, the brunt of what I considered great um, generational inequity. I was, I was naive enough to think I could move the needle um, I was clearly wrong. The only thing Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton agreed on in 2016 is we shouldn't touch entitlements. I'm probably naive to this day to think I can move the needle again, but honestly, um, I've looked at what's gone on over the last 10 years, and the situation looks so dire, I just got to give it another shot. <laughs> and. Um, what better place to start at USC? It was funny because <laughs> I went to all these colleges, and I understand why I was well-received at USC and Notre Dame and, and University of North Carolina, but I also went to Bowdoin, Brown, and Berkeley and thought I'd be booed out of the room. And the, th the students were actually quite enthusiastic afterward, but I don't know, maybe they went back to the rooms and smoked pot or something because <laughs> I, I certainly didn't start a, start a movement. So for the younger in the audience, um, some of you might think, I'm just starting my career. Why should I care about this generational issue? Let me tell you, you, you may not be thinking about your retirement or your health care bill when you grow old, but if nothing changes, pensions tomorrow will be a fraction of what they are today and the government won't be able to pay half of your health care bill. Think about it. In 20 or 30 years, there will be fewer young workers, many more seniors that need our support, and we'll be starting with the highest national debt in history. If you believe you will have as comfortable a retirement as current seniors, like me and Sheldon, unfortunately, think again. And long before you retire, 
the horrible consequences of, the, of remaining on the path we have foolishly stuck with will be borne by you and your children. The arithmetic just doesn't work out. Let me give you some facts. The share of fiscal spending going to seniors has been growing dramatically since the 60s when Medicare and Medicaid joined Social Security as federal entitlements. Today we spend 6x, 6x more per senior than we do for child in this country. Think Social Security versus education. Almost 40% of all our taxes are spent on seniors and the trend is just only gets started. So here's the demographic problem I was worried about. I'm not too good with pointers. Um, this is when I came here, and this is where we are now. What I was worried about is after World War II and everybody came back, um, everybody had a bunch of babies. Uh, and the birth rate peaked in 1957 at 3.7. It's currently under 2. So you had this moving bulge of Sheldon and I and a zillion others, and we're the boomers. Um, the problem is the boomers are all turning 65 right when that line hits, and we, can, we continue to grow, and we're living longer, but the current generation isn't making babies at, at that rate anymore. So what you have is a huge growth in surplus of older Americans who are receiving entitlements, but you don't have the younger workers creating enough revenue to pay for them. Um, so if you look at this, we're just getting underway in terms of the consequences of this great boom. In 25 years, the spending on seniors, it's up there on the chart, will grow to 70% of all taxes. It'll be 60% in 20 years. It's 40% today. Effectively, these entitlements, they're going to be compounding away and they're going to squeeze everything else out in terms of private and public investment. In this context, the fiscal recklessness of the last decade, for me, given what my thoughts were, has been like, like watching a horror movie unfold. Look at this chart. Uh, you're looking at the level of indebtedness only comparable of the US over the last 100 years. And you'll see the big bulge when we had to wave, pay for World War II. And then you'll see the big bulge now. Since I came to USC and talked about this, the federal debt, which I was concerned about at the time, has grown from 15 trillion to 31 trillion. But what is worse, and this is what really annoys me, and I, well, I, no one talks about it. Right before I came over here, some Republican was on TV ranting about the debt because it's 32 trillion. Do you know? that the $32 trillion assumes the federal government will never make another Social Security or Medicare payment. Only government accounting could think <laughs> that the government is never going to make another payment. Not one. Not to me. Not to Sheldon. Not to you guys when you get older. That's what the accounting reads. If you actually accounted for that, um, the debt wouldn't be $31 trillion. Credible estimates, if you present value of that, 200 trillion. That's 200 trillion with a T. Um, what makes the last 10 years particularly horrific 
is that we've had golden opportunities to reduce this fiscal gap ahead of the demographic storm that I showed in the first part. You know, the, the, the debt load we have now, by the way, is not even comparable to first debt load anyway, because they didn't have this demographic problem back then. So that was kind of a true debt load there. And you see how it came down dramatically right after World War II? That's because they cut government spending um, and they also raised taxes to unwind for the paying of the war. So fast forward to present day, we're back up here again. In the last 10 years, we've had the opportunity to do the same. But look what we've done. Um, in the recovery in, after the great financial crisis, uh, when, when President Trump came in, a Republican, administration who claim they are for spending restraint, but only, by the way, when they're out of power, the deficit never went lower than 5% of GDP. It's unheard of in a full-blown recovery of that kind of force to have a deficit. You're historically, you run a surplus. And then post-COVID, we had a booming economy where tax revenues were augmented by high inflation, nominal growth of over 10%, a windfall of capital gains taxes, 600 billion above average because of the tech boom. We made 100 billion in spectrum sales. So you had a booming economy, you had 10% nominal growth, you had inflation. So you might reasonably ask, how much bigger was the surplus that year than in the tech boom in the late 90s when we actually went into surplus? Well, incredibly, as the chart shows, we ran a deficit, and it was over a trillion dollars. Never in history has a booming economy produced a worse fiscal result. Never. Expect this trend, and it is a trend, as you can see, to continue, absent radical policy changes. The arithmetic of your entitlements just doesn't work. So imagine asking yourself how much taxes you need to be raised today to maintain the current level of safety net into the future going forward. That amount economists call the fiscal gap. That's how much you would have to raise taxes today to keep these payments that we've promised the same in the future as they are now. Today that measure is 7.7% of GDP. When I presented here 10 years ago, it was 7.2% of GDP. Okay. What does 7.7% fiscal gap, gap of GDP means? Here's what it means. To fix it, you would need a 40% increase, permanent tax increase, today, forever, or you'd have the other lovely choice of a 35% cut in, in spending today, forever, permanent. Two dreadful choices, and frankly, they're probably still underestimated. I think USC Business School students would understand if you raise taxes or you cut spending that much, uh, investment would inevitably falter and growth would suffer considerably, making it impossible to maintain the size of our current safety net. Now, how ironic that France, it's the second bar chart, France, the poster child for social welfare state, their fiscal gap is less than a third of ours, 
and they've just been through huge political evil because he wants to do the right thing for the next generation. Meanwhile, in the U.S., the only thing the Democrats and the Republicans can agree on is that entitlement shouldn't be touched. And waiting only makes the problem worse as interest rates keep building. That's the problem here. The longer you rate, wait, in, in addition to the entitlements, the interest rates start compounding like crazy. So there is most definitely an issue in relation to the debt crisis. So the federal government has basically charged interest for the use of lenders' money in the same way that lenders charge an individual interest for a car loan or mortgage. And how much the government pays in interest depends on the total national debt and various security interest rates. And as of 2022 August, it costs just under $700 billion to maintain the debt, which is around 12% of total federal spending. And the increased national debt has occurred every single year over the past 10 years, and interest rates during this period have remained fairly stable due to low interest rates and investors' judgment that the US government has very low risk of default. However, in recent times, the increase in interest rates and inflation are now resulting in an increase in interest expenses. And our economists are basically debating as to if this is sustainable by any means of the word. According to CBO, they have some fairly staggering estimations which Stanley Jockerman had touched upon. The cost to just finance to debt is expected to be just under 400 billion in 2021 and to increase to just under 700 billion by the end of the decade, according to CBO estimations. And this money is going to be spent on the interest, not on the principal, which is fairly staggering, if you ask me. Question is, is and I always reiterate the statement whenever I speak about this topic, is the debt of today going to be outpaced by the growth of tomorrow? And I think when you have an incompetent leader in charge, this is Joseph Biden, when you have incompetent politicians at the Fed, so on and so forth, in control of our economy, in control of our society, advocating for more spending, or more debt without any consideration as to if this is being spent effectively, then this leads to big issues. And the big issue with the government is that this is an ineffective and I would say very inefficient organization. This is my big case against taxation. Why are you moving money from the efficient hands, namely an organization such as Tesla or Elon Musk, towards inefficient hands, namely the government? And therefore, when it comes to the debt crisis and the spiraling of the national debt, one has to really question as to if the debt is being utilized within effective means. Else, it is just incredibly, incredibly dangerous in terms of the repayability. There are basically a few major ways in which we can repay the debt that we'll touch upon within one moment. But it doesn't seem like it's painting a good picture, specifically when you have the case of COVID, which I believe was one of the biggest mishandlings within modern history, and perhaps was just a case in which the government, in face of a, let's say, an emergency, they froze and adopted tyrannical measures in which are analogous to that of the CCP communistic dictatorship autocratic Chinese Communist Party. And thus they printed billions of dollars, 40% of the money supply within one year. So no wonder we have big issues with the economy and when you have just incompetence on that magnitude. So historically, the good news is that the US has historically outpaced the debt via growth. The US debt was 258.68 billion in 1945, but the economy outgrew that in a few years, and GDP more than doubled in 1960. Congress believes that today's debt is going to be dwarfed by tomorrow's economic growth. And there are basically a few major ways in which one can mitigate the issues in relation to debt and not repay the debt. So Congress could, as one possibility, shift spending from the defense to job creation areas like infrastructure and education. If almost 50% of the government's spending goes to the military, However, if they shift this, and past studies do indicate that the money spent on the military is less effective within creation of jobs, 
the money spent within other areas. So there most definitely is a possibility of shifting spending. But I don't think this is necessarily a good idea, as we'll speak about just within one second. So the most striking feature in regards to the reductions of national debt is that they tend to occur within periods of economic booms, economic growth, which reduces the debt-to-GDP ratio. You can see in the UK they reduced their debt-to-GDP ratio from 240% of GDP in 1950 to 40% of the GDP in 2002, despite rarely running a budget surplus. It was economic growth that led towards ta uh, rising tax returns, thus mitigating the issues in relation to debt. But the concern is, if we enter into a period of what many are calling secular stagnation, great word secular stagnation, then this shall result within the inability of repaying the debt. And I think this is more than a possibility. In consideration of our weakness on the military front, too, in consideration of the demonization of capitalism, which is increasingly you know, occurring. And as you can see now, one of the biggest things with the US is the capabilities of entrepreneurialism, and which culturally, culturally is, is ingrained within the United States. But in recent times, we've had a major overrepresentation for law and finance-related jobs. I'm not saying that they aren't great for the economy, but I'm saying that maybe we should try and incentivize more entrepreneurialism. Maybe we should try and incentivize more individuals like Elon Musk, who alone add tens of trillions of dollars, billions of dollars, many would argue, to the United States. And when you relay that to debt, if many more people do that, if we incentivize entrepreneurialism even further and nurture entrepreneurs, then this can enable the mitigation of the issues in relation to the debt. So the point being is really, in my view, that in order to ensure that the debt of today shall be outpaced via the growth of tomorrow, the only way we can do this is via technological innovation, in my humble opinion. As I stated, there are a few major ways in which the US can mitigate the issues in relation to massive debt. And this is through technological innovation, productivity growth of the economy. You also have rising tax, you have shifting spending, so on and so forth. But I, I just don't think it's feasible that the governments are going to cut spending or shift spending within any means of the word. Uh, perhaps some shifting of spending shall occur, but when the interest upon the debt is so, is so great, that is very futile, in my personal opinion. What is going to happen is increased taxation rates for the current generation or for the younger generation, whatever their word is, Gen X or whatever you call them. And two, idealistically, increase productivity from a technological front. That is what needs to happen. According to Wark Invest, they have some radical predictions that mitigate the concern of, Dr of Stanley Druckenmiller because they note the fact that actually we could have economic growth of upwards of 30%. 30%, I believe, is their kind of base case in regards to economic growth on an annual basis, which is just obviously an absurdity. It's a very radical prediction. Maybe they're true. If they are, if they are true, kudos. They state that from our estimations for 2030 propelled AI software, total IT spend could increase at 20% an annual rate and surpass 20 trillion, which is four times to $5 trillion estimation consensus as shown. According to their research, during the next eight years, AI software could boost the productivity of the average knowledge worker by nearly 140%, adding approximately $50,000 in value per worker or $56 trillion shown globally. If you just look at tools such as OpenAI Codex tools, and the use of then neural networks to autocomplete tasks can now complete more than 30% of coding problems associated with a simple task, such as creation of a website form in minutes instead of hours. And given the current rate of improvement, tools like Codex are increasingly likely to take over specific tasks in nearly every single job category, from accountancy to engineering. And according to McKinsey, the midpoint scenario suggests that AI could automate 15% of the labor tasks by 2030. And fundamentally, ARK Invest points towards the similarities of innovation now in emerging markets within the past in which they state, the people could see in the past 
the GDP was going to accrue within emerging markets, and therefore individuals deployed equity towards the emerging markets in order to benefit from the gain. And we believe that the same now is true for innovation, said ARK Invest. They stated that we believe a strategic allocation to innovation is going to evolve into a sub-asset class, as did the niche strategy of the 1980s, the emerging markets. In the late 80s and early 90s, investors had little if any exposure to what had evolved now into the 30% of global equity market capitalization and 60% of global gross domestic product. And initially, the point being, many investors uh, resisted this exposure towards developing markets based upon the volatility associated with geopolitical uncertainties, corporate governance and liquidity. Over time, however, emerging markets basically showed to be a great place to invest your capital, which led towards outstanding returns. So population collapse is also another issue Stanley Druckenmiller touches upon throughout his commentary, which is very interesting. And the fundamental premise is, if we're going to increase the rate of debt, um, there is an inability seemingly to repay this debt. The interest expense is going to be so high. And due to the declining birth rates, I mean, you're just going to have older people working many more years as the younger generation is going to be supposedly diminishing, which is very interesting. He states that population collapse is clearly an issue, and China's latest figures show that population collapse is occurring for the first time in over six decades, according to figures published on Tuesday. But this is not the only one. Many countries, especially in Europe and Asia, are going to see their population decline in the coming decades. Forecasts for 2100 published by the UN last July proved to be true. In other words, population is declining substantially. And China is forecast to lose almost half of their people, by the end of the century, plunging from more than 1.4 billion to 771 million inhabitants. Civilization, instead of going out with a bank, could really go out with a fizzle, with diapers and nappies, which is obviously a very uh, sad way to put it. I would prefer some sort of exciting end to civilization, like an asteroid hurtling towards Earth in comparison to kind of an old man in a diaper. But the question really is, is what is called this declining birth rate? Is we're ever going to see this return to higher rates? And I think much of this is actually a religious issue. The waning acceptance of religion and which is a moral code and compass to lead towards a meaningful, purposeful life. That is diminished within light of industrialization, within light of the democratization of science and education. And this is a big issue. This is a spiritual, religious issue. In the, in, too, in the, within the introduction of the pill, this is basically liberated sex. Sex is now a meaningless thing in which the separation of pleasure and childbearing is completely divorced. We've just turned into kind of hedonistic freaks in which we just go around in a hedonistic way, pursuing hedonistic pleasures without any, any sanctity for sex, in which previously, within light of religious observance, was not a commonality. The point being is that sexual activity has turned into so-called deliberated practice or something without importance whatsoever. The sanctity of sex, the sanctity of sexual activity has been totally evaporated. And two, the feministic movement has really not helped this. Um, this has supposedly kind of diminished gender roles, I guess you could say. And it has also, I would say, emasculated the feminine, in which now women are supposedly, according to the feminists, meant to be totally equal to men. There's meant to be no differentiation between gender roles, which is obviously stupid. This has led towards a dissolving of the conventional means and methods of the traditional family structure which was conducive towards the maintenance of a family. And sure, it's great that the women have the ability to vote. Women have the ability to have a great career, whatever. It is great, from, but from my experience, the culture today, women are just solely focused upon the obsession over capitalism. This idea that the only meaningful thing to do is to have a high-paying job. The only meaningful thing to do is to become a lawyer and work 95 hours per week. The only th meaningful thing to do is to focus upon your career. And they have no 
uh, no understanding in relation to the sanctity and the value of being a mother. Because this is the big issue we need to reinforce back into the culture, which I believe stems from religion, the necessity of being a full-time mother and how this is the most meaningful job within the world. And just because the conventional society we live within does not directly, let's say, reward a female with a child through monetary means, this is the most meaningful role within society. Elon Musk reiterated this too recently. He stated that being a mother is the most meaningful job within the world. And this idea that thanks to the feministic movement, the lack of observance when it comes to religion, I would say, the diminishing value of religion and to the introduction of the pill, this has basically led towards a dangerous concoction in regards to declining birth rates and the lack of sanctity of sex and thus the lack of necessity, it seems, for having a child. The major underlying issue behind this is a lacking sense of religion and purpose. In light of industrialization, the main religion of the day seems to be humanism or capitalism, and as conventional religions of a mystical deity have been totally evaporated. And when one is not guided by religion and God, in which is a moral code for how one should ideally live their life, there is seemingly lacking value within the conventional marriage system. People no longer see value in the marriage, and we've radically redefined the basic building blocks of society, the marriage-based family. Marriage for marriage was, for nearly all of humanity, human history, predominantly built around childbearing and child-rearing. However, now, in light of the diminishing acceptance and supposed value of religion, this fundamental tenant of a society, namely marriage between a man and woman, in which is fundamental for childbearing, this has been totally evaporated from society. So, they are Stanley Jokomila's big concerns. It's very interesting, his commentary on population collapse, and I think this is perhaps one of the biggest issues. Climate change is not the big issue. You know, uh, some other of these radical ideologies by the catastrophization army, namely AI kind of taking over humans instantaneously, is not the biggest issue. The biggest issue is probably population collapse, because it's occurring very rapidly. And humanity this far seemingly is going out with a whimper in comparison to a lovely bang.